From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. We're coming to you via Zoom as we have for the last two plus years in the time of pandemic. Zoom a little less intimate, but it allows most of us to be here most of the time. Glad to be here, gentlemen. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday run a few times over the course of the week. I am curious how y'all are doing. I, I look, everyone looks like they're at home right now. So it's kind of a, it's early summer, no big summer travels yet. We have um, a great interview at the end of the show, Dean Oliver, who we haven't talked to for a couple of years, one of the real pioneers in basketball and really analytics in general sports analytics, but especially in basketball, he's with the Washington wizards in a coaching capacity, which is really interesting. We're going to talk with him. At the end of the show, we have a couple of open segments in the middle of the show, as we usually do. We'll start with COVID, and then we'll switch at some point. If there's not enough COVID material, there may not be. It's a little quieter on the COVID front. But let's start there, guys. In the world of COVID-19 over the past week, what's caught your eye? Well, not too much. It's a, In fact, it, usually there's something that happens in the week. Um, last week, we saw the the uh, the approval or the recommendation by the CDC of, of uh, booster shots for five-year-olds and up. Um, and uh, I thought that was uh, unnecessary. I mean, I think they should be allowing it if, you, if the doctor wants to prescribe it, but recommending it seems a little bit odd. But they also recommended that we wear masks to protect ourselves from monkeypox, um, that's like, it seems to be a bit of an overreach by the CDC and thinking about all the other things that the, that the CDC recommends, that's, that's something that you should, should sort of think about, um, rather than, you know, go run out and do. So we, we should keep that in mind. Um, that's so real quickly, quick survey. Do you think monkeypox is going to be something that we're going to take up as an issue on the show at any point? No, it, it doesn't no. transmit uh, by aerosol. Um, and no, no, I, don't I mean, unless, you know, we're just kind of more virus jazzed in general, like, yeah, it's kind of asking, like, you know, like, it's like, you know, well, will we someday discuss Ebola on the show? Maybe, but, you know, not, not, not as like a, a particularly relevant, okay, well, that's health the, concern in the United States. That's, that's the spirit of the question, of course, is yeah. will it rise to that level? Okay. Yeah. The Supreme there, there was, I will add, um, not to talk about monkeypox, but there was an interesting article in New England Journal analyzing uh, Israeli fourth dose um, data that's on, on elderly people and suggests that it does lower the mortality fairly significantly. What counts as elderly? Uh, 65 and up. Um, and that is, uh, and, and it was pretty significant, although it was, you know, the time period was pretty, pretty compact. Um, so who knows how that, if that, one of the concerns about boosters, if whatever activity they do, um, in, um, they provide an, an antibody kind of, uh, you know, a- action, it, it, it fades pretty quickly. So what, um, what you say pretty compact, I mean, it's a short horizon study. They, they among, see a, so you're right. The first, they, month, the first month right, after so, the fourth booster. Right, so, and, and Israel, they opened up the fourth dose right in the middle of the Omicron, you know, surge. So that was the right time to get a booster shot. If we, one of the things that we've talked about, you know, you asked me, should I get, are we, should I get the fourth? I haven't done it yet. I, well, I'm, I'm not rushing out to do it. I'm, I'm waiting for something else. You know, right now we're, we're it looks like we're saying goodbye to the, 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 uh, the BA 12, BA whatever's 
uh, things are going down. I'm not waiting. I'm not rushing out for a booster because something could be coming around the corner. And I, I feel like there's a, only well, a small pile of them. Just a counterpoint to that. What evidence do you have? This is the same thing I brought up the last time you brought it up. So Kate and I think both have gotten our four shots. We're over 50, gotten our four shots. Um, what prevents me any more than you when the new vaccine comes? I can get that one, too. And I'm protected. I'm maybe, maybe I'm more protected between now and then. Well, you know, I can turn around and, you know, it's been conjectured by Paul Offit that vaccines will lose their ability to do anything if you take it too often. So, all right. Well, that's a a counter argument. (laughs) It it does look like, again, if you were to time it like, you know, we are kind of it does seem like we're kind of coming down, at least in this part of the country on the other side of this most recent spike. I mean, again, calling it a spike, I guess, you know, things are decreasing again in this part of the country. Um, so, you know, you might want to at least, I, I you know, I, I would be tempted to hold off until the next kind of strain comes around and it would inevitably will happen. It's worth noting again, that we are on that other side of this kind of increase and there hasn't yet been the one thing that I've kind of noticed that, that is that the death rate continues to drop, even though the, you know, the case rate, there was not an, in, you know, an increased death rate corresponding to this increased case rate that we saw. Most right. Recently. In fact, the, the, they seem they seem actually kind of permanently decoupled now. Eric's yep. got the numbers in the rundown showing that the the, the moving average, which is what people are always mm-hmm. quoting, the daily fatality rate in the U.S. the moving average is real close to what it was a year ago, despite a significantly higher case rate. And everyone thinks kind of an underreported uh, case rate. Do I have that right, Eric? You do. I was actually using that data, though, to show a different point, although I agree with your point Mm -hmm. uh, and Shane's point about the decoupling of the two. I was using it more to say, well, if the death rate is basically the same as a year ago and then the death rate did go up for a while and come down, what's to make us believe that's not going to happen again? And so my concern was that we are at a low right now in the death rate. As a matter of fact, you have to go way, way back in time to get a death rate lower than that we have now. My comment is, this is the summer in most places, and in the U.S. certainly, to think that um, indoors is going to be even worse. Like, why are we, why don't we think that come fall and winter again, that we're going to end up with maybe double or triple the amount of deaths we have now? Maybe it's not going to be six to eight times or ten times, which is what we saw a year ago, but suppose it was just half the level of spike. We could be back at a thousand deaths a day. Is there anybody here that is is, is there anybody here that doesn't believe that we will be back to a thousand deaths a day in the winter? Wow, that's I know. I ask a question. I'm asking. Yeah, that as a here, question. I know. I know. It's like I. I mean, I mean, one of the main arguments, like you know, for optimism is that we continue to just get better at treating COVID as as time goes along, both not just in terms of kind of you know. Again, we could have an even more tailored kind of booster by then. We have these pills now that, you know, are used to treat COVID. Um, So I I think just kind of the advance of medicine in various kind of, you know, on various parts of the sort of like health uh, COVID process, I think. is. I think the death rate, I agree with you, Shane. I think the death rate will probably, there's no evidence to believe that the death rate is going to go back up for the people who are willing to get maybe their fourth shot or fifth shot or take a uh, you know Paxlovid or whatever it is once they get COVID. My concern is that I didn't say which thousand people are going to die. I think the continued 
never takers, um, I see no reason to believe the death rate won't go back up in the fall and winter for those individuals. I don't think it'll go back up as high as it was before. But even if it got reduced by a third, well, we were getting 3,000 deaths a day. I'm not okay with 1,000 deaths a day. We're down to 247 right now. But I don't, and this is the summer, I don't have any reason to believe, and that's still, by the way, let's just be clear, that's still almost 100,000 deaths a year. That's still a fairly significant number. That was my point. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that the unvaccinated, which still makes up a fairly substantial fraction of the society. Or people vaccinated a long time ago. Yeah, but that's a different group. There doesn't seem to be wearing, a wearing down too much of the protection from mortality, at least. Um, yeah. Uh, the community unvaccinated have, have either gotten it or, or died, <laughs> you know, so you, you have to think about that. Um, so I don't think I don't I don't think we'll see a 3000 death. No, no, no. That's, I didn't, remember, actually, I didn't uh, predict that. I, I predicted yeah, but I don't, a much I, I'm actually, lower rate. Yeah, I don't think we'll see the thousand either. That's well, I want to I, I want to I'm curious whether we can speculate any more um, seriously on the comment you just made, your, your glib comment about. If they're yeah. unvaccinated, they've either died or they've had it, which is pretty fair, it seems. But how accurate do you think that is? Like, what what percentage of unvaccinated people? So, one, what's the vaccination rate in the country right now? Is it 70, 75? 78, uh, I think, or so. I have at least one. Now, that may be of eligible people as opposed to just everyone. Uh, the last yeah, time I looked, it was of the people that got at least one dose, I know is like something like 85%. But those uh, are like of adults or now it's of, of, of right. a certain age. I mean, no, okay. New York so, Times has a, a 78% of all ages of all have had at least one dose. Okay, so let's call it let's call it 78%. And so only 22% of the country is completely unvaccinated. And you're saying, well, some large fraction of those, I mean, they're not still being counted if they've passed away. So we've got 22% of the country let's call it 20, um, some large percentage probably have gotten it. What do you think that is? And what does that leave us as either, you know, not vaccinated and not naturally immunized? Well, it, it, the, the rate of getting, getting uh, naturally, um, having had infected is inversed with age. So the younger people, they suspect it's around 90%. And the older people, they suspect it's more like 25%. Um, but then the vaccination rate is positive. The vaccination rate has reversed that. So I think a lot of those, those, uh, those people have been infected. I'd say I, uh, of, the, of the unvaccinated, I'd probably venture 75%, 50 to 75%. Okay. I don't think we, this, the, 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 I think there's so much vaccination and natural immunity or both in the country that we'll never see more than a thousand again. That's my never. I never want to say never. That's, that's, COVID has done nothing but throw massive knuckleballs and curveballs at us the entire time. So I'm going to just say not likely more, you know, I'd be a bit surprised if it hit. Yeah, just to give you the numbers, by the way, there's, according to the CDC data, there's roughly 100 million people in the U.S. that are not fully vaccinated, a little over that, about 120 million. And at the at-risk population, which I'll just use your definition. Hold on, that's real. a much higher percentage than we were it just is. talking about. You said fully awful. vaccinated. Fully oh, vaccinated. That's two, that, no, no, two but that's by the CDC, that means two shots. Okay. Two okay. shots is fully vaccinated according to their definition. But just to give you an idea, um, of the people above the age of 65, 65 and up, there's 10% or about 5 million people that are not fully vaccinated. And so, you know, you, it's just oh, it's a weighted average, as we've talked about from the beginning. What fraction of those people do we think have COVID and have some form of protection? What form have none? 
what fraction of those are going to die from the next wave of COVID that comes around. But the fact is that there's still well over 100 million people in the United States that are not fully vaccinated. And if we believe that there's a repeat rate for COVID, and I don't know, Adi, maybe there is data. Do we know if you get COVID and then you, let's say it's a year later and you get COVID again, is the likelihood of hospitalization and death lower the second time? Surely. It's got to be because they've shown that. that but it's that a year later. Not, so uh, it's a year yeah, later. It's, uh, yeah, this is a tough, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't know the answer off hand. I would get, I would say with Kane, surely. But, you know, I, you talk about the CDC data. We all live in this country. Nobody, we don't keep track of this stuff on a person yeah. level. So I just, you know, you know, CDC was talking about 99.9% of 65 and older being vaccinated. They had to walk that one back because it was silly. Remember, we talked about that. Yeah, for years. I just don't, I don't really, you know, the Times is saying one thing, others are saying another. Um, I don't think that we're going to get an answer to this question in our country. I think we'll get a, an answer maybe in other countries. But even that's a toughie because so many of us, when we have gotten COVID, and, and whether that's us or our families or our friends, who, who reported it, Right. Um, you know, so I had COVID and, and it's, I don't think it's in my file, even though I called up my, my doctor and told him I had a, P, a positive PCR at Penn. How, how do we know who's gotten COVID? Yeah, I was purely referring to their, <laughs> I hope they have yeah. some reasonable estimate of the vaccination rate and the death rate. Those are the only two numbers I have any credit and right. I have any belief that they I'm have just somewhat asking, accurate. Like, a gen, I'm asking a general question. Like, how would we, let's say we were called up to consult. Like, how do we design a study? To, to answer the question that you asked, like we got, you got, you're unvaccinated, you got COVID. It's been more than a year. What's the chance you're going to get hospitalized that second time? Remember, if you, you, if you're a weak person, you probably, you may have died already, right? So then there's a selection bias to the second time already. You have to keep factor that in. And that's not insubstantial. Um, the first wave of COVID really took out the very sickest people in society. Can I do a, can I do a blood test and tie that to somebody's hospital records? Sure, we could try, right? But but we'd like no. To you said a, I could design. I'm I'm living in fantasy land. I could you got you said I get to design any study I want. Well, he, so you're I designing just, a mechanism, but where's your where's your sampling frame? I mean, who's you going who are you going to try to deal with as your as your population to get this thing even started? Right? Well, uh, I'm gonna let, let's say I I have some way of doing a random sample of the population, <laughs> not from some sampling frame <laughs> that's obviously going to be biased. So no, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What a tough question. Like, that's the hardest thing about statistics is we teach in this, we teach our students about random samples and stratifications and all this stuff. And then in the real world, it sets it's, it's, it in and those things just are so hard to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think I might be convinced as as ignorant as we are of the fundamental inputs to this question. I think I'm nevertheless inclined to believe Adi that we're not going to see a thousand deaths again. A, d- a thousand deaths a day again because of how much natural plus um, uh, Im- vaccine immunization we have. Yeah, um, I mean, the, to, we, we could still see a hundred thousand in a year. Plus, plus change yeah. point about the medical treatments. So I mean, it could be, I, I think it might be, you know, I think coming back to one of Eric's earlier statements, I think it's not, I, I, I wouldn't bet against a hundred thousand deaths per year for the next year or two at least or maybe in you know but yeah i'll take the over in that number but that's well, that's all right that's so there we go market put it in the books i'm on i'm on the under 
Okay. You're on I'll, under so 100,000 deaths Wait. in the year 2023. No, no, let's example. take a, a year right. from today. So we're going to be on the air. Let's say it's June 8th, 2023. I'm making a prediction that there's more than 100,000 COVID deaths. Oh, that's deaths. a much tougher question. You were 1,000 deaths a day. Uh, yeah, 1,000 really. questions a day. No, no, but I, by the way, 100,000 question. No, no, I, yeah, that's right. I, no, yeah, I, 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 I that question. 100,000 COVID deaths, 100,000 deaths in a year from a bad respiratory virus is not that infrequent for a bad respiratory virus. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not COVID. You Good, then you like my the, prediction. You like my prediction. You know, 100,000 is just not that lot in a country of 340 million. But I'm just yeah. listening to my colleague, Shane Jensen, who brought up the number 100,000, yeah, and I, I, I said just, yeah. I'd take the over. I think yeah, that's the lower I, limit. I think, the, I, I, think, I, I, think, I think we've kind of put the limits on here, fellas. 1,000 a day is kind of the upper limit of what one might expect. 100,000 cumulative is probably near the lower yeah. limit. That, that, I mean, in the sense that I'm taking the under on 1,000 deaths per day, yeah, but uh, uh, taking the over right. on 100,000 deaths per day. You're in year. the envelope. We just sketched yeah. it out. All I right. think that's the envelope, exactly. 100,000 <laughs> is what we're going to see in total. And, and I'd go for, I, won't see, I don't think we'll see a day with over 1,000 deaths. And I'll go for 150 to 200,000 in total, somewhere in that range. But I agree, 1,000. I didn't say there's going to be an average of 1,000. I said in the winter, yeah, I yeah, could yeah. imagine it. Be, that's yeah, be clear what I said. Well, <laughs> of course, of course. I just uh, want to be clarifying you, what I we heard said. You, we heard yeah. you, and, 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 and we're shy of that. Audie and I are, are strongly short that. Even hearing you precisely, we're short that way. <laughs> okay, Eric, you've got it. You've got a. You've got a bit here you want to talk about with the financial. The well, financial. I, I saw this um, comment by uh, Frieden, who I believe is the former CDC health commissioner, um, and he just made a comment. Maybe I don't think he meant it from a political perspective. He just said that the U.S. spends about three hundred to five hundred times more on our military than we spend on health defense. And that no war in American history has ever killed a million Americans. Now, the reason I brought this up on a statistics show like us um, wasn't to be political, but to say, do you think let's take the number we all agree right now, the lower bounds, 100,000 and the upper bound might be 300,000 if 100,000. What do you think the ROI on our spend would be if we spent the money on health instead? Like, let's imagine we cut for the next year. It's purely hypothetical. We cut our military spending in half, but 100x our health spending. Where do you, do you think we would get a massive ROI in terms of reduction in deaths? That's why this article caught my eye. This comment caught my eye because I was like, would spending more even solve the problem? Do we think it would? Are, are we only help? allowed to spend this extra money on COVID or can we spend it on cancer and diabetes? Good question. I good question, Shane. I was referring. I to think we could COVID. save a lot of lives with that no. amount of money thrown at like cancer, diabetes. Good question. I was referring. Good point. I was referring to COVID only because his million death number was yeah. referring to COVID deaths. So I was just wondering if we took the same money, cut our. And I'm not going to comment, by the way, on whether cutting our military spending in half might lead to a lot more deaths due to some other cause. I just meant if we took a big amount of money and spent it on COVID, do we actually think the number of deaths would be dramatically reduced? Mostly, I don't think so. But I think the question it raises is where would you spend it? I think that's a kind of really interesting question. So what's the, what's the best margin to spend that on? It right. feels to me too late in this pandemic to save that many lives. Maybe we could prepare better for next pandemic. Maybe we could build some infrastructure so that we have data that help us fight it next time around. Those, that's my answer. Yeah. Or, or, or I, could, like, I like that answer, Kate. If I'm, I'm going to just say, um, if anyone's listening from the CDC, do what Kate Massey just suggested. Let's spend it on a data infrastructure. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, yeah. Eric Topol, when he was on a show, uh, had basically says that's the missing structure. Yeah. I would, I would, I've been screaming that. We've all been yelling. Yeah. I mean, someone's got to solve this problem so that there is a national database, um, an integrated database of of illness and and vaccine and. You know, our, our process is extremely slow. I, one thing that I think that CDC does and does reasonably well is it counts deaths. And that's because every death in this country has to get registered with the CDC. So it often takes a long time for them to figure out why you died or how you died. And sometimes they get that wrong. But that you died, that happens. <laughs> and that gets recorded. Um, but that's got to go faster and more and more centralized and available to the, the researchers in the community in the country that want to see it. It can't get closed up. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, kind of uh, paraphrasing your question, Eric, back on what we were talking about before, if we kind of, if 100,000 is kind of maybe, you know, like what we think might happen over the next year, uh, due, uh, deaths due to COVID, um, I don't think we'd probably be able to get that down by more than like, say, 20% by just throwing like, you know, a, a military amount of spending at that. I mean, that 20%, you know, 20,000 people is a lot, but, you know, I don't think we'd be able to, but, but we would be able to learn a lot more. We'd know a lot more about the science of COVID, which would help us in from years to come, not just for COVID, but for the next, you know, virus down the road. It's shocking that the scientists suggest spending the money on science. <laughs> And you get docs in here. They'll statistics, have specific statistics and data. That's where all that money should go. <laughs> this is why you have to ask people from different disciplines on how to optimally spend the money. All right, guys, let's wrap our COVID conversation there. We've got some sports to talk about. That's Q1. We still have three quarters in front of us. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew in here. Shane is here. Eric is here. Adi's here. Maddie's online. Dion's got work in front of him. Dion's not with us now, sadly, but howdy, Dion. You guys can jump in. We love it when you do jump in. Hit us up on, on a Twitter, probably the easiest way. At W Moneyball is our handle there. At W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We love to hear from you. Positive or negative, give us a shout. Also, we have a mailbag via email for longer or more personal reach outs. Um, hit us up that way. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We read everything you send us, and we're always glad to hear from you. We get as much of it as we can on air. Speaking of which guys, we're going to need to get some on. It's been a little while since we've done a mailbag. I need to pull some of those things up, but we love hearing from you guys. Please keep sending them our way. Gentlemen, we've got open segments here and next quarter, we got a lot going on. It's a very interesting time in the world of sports. Let's honor our colleague and friend, Eric Bradlow by starting at Roland Guerra. I know that it had his attention over the weekend. Yeah, well, I mean, since our last show, I mean, uh, another historic win for Rafa Nadal. Uh, you know, he's now up to 14 French o- Open titles, which is just an unbelievably remarkable number. And for all the naysayers that want to say, yeah, he's got 22 majors, but 14 was at the French. You know, I like to do math. 22 minus 14 is eight. So even if we eliminate the French, I don't know, he's had the career of Lendl, McEnroe, and Connors. 
So that's not too bad, <laughs> you know, even if we take away the 14 uh, French Opens. Um, you know, people can say, well, the Australian, you know, they didn't allow Djokovic in the country, and so Nadal didn't have that tough a road. All right, well, at the French Open, he beat uh, Novak Djokovic, the number one player in the world. He beat Alexander Zverev, albeit Zverev got injured, but Nadal was winning that match. Uh, he's number three in the world. He beat Kasper Ruud in the finals, who's number eight in the world. And then the quarterfinals, he beat Felix Auger-Aliassime, who's number nine in the world. So he beat one, three, eight, and nine on the way to this French Open title. I, I don't think you can actually get a tougher draw than mm-hmm. the sum of those numbers. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, he's now uh, 29 and 30 against Djokovic overall. Uh, so he's trying to, he's gotten, getting closer to even. Um, the number that I care about the most is in majors. He's 11 and 7 against Djokovic. Um, the other interesting number is that this stat came out this week because, you know, now that Nadal's got a two major lead against Djokovic and Federer, he's got 22. They both have 20. How have they compared against each other in the majors? And here are the numbers. Nadal is 21 and 10 against Djokovic and Federer in the majors. Djokovic is 17 and 16, and Federer is 10 wins and 21 losses. And so, I don't know. I mean, that seems pretty impressive to me. And how the narrative has changed since, let's all remember, just whatever, eight months ago, Novak Djokovic was going for the Grand Slam, which had not been done in the calendar year since Rod Laver in 69. Um, He had won three majors in a row. He had caught Federer. And Nadal, he was the unstoppable force. Right. He loses in the U.S. Open, doesn't get to play the Australian, and now gets beaten soundly by Nadal and the French. Now, all of a sudden, he's three majors behind to catch up, to pass Nadal. And it's not obvious that it's going to happen. So, um, to me, I think at this point, if their careers ended today, their careers aren't over, but if their careers ended today, I don't think there's any doubt Nadal would have to be considered the greatest player of all time, not just the king of clay. Oh, oh, come on. No, 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 no. Come on. I mean, mean, take it. Djokovic just beat Nadal head to head. What'd you say? uh, 17 to 10? No, I didn't say that. I said the opposite. I said their record, their overall records in all tournaments is their 29 and 30. In other words, Nadal's won 29 matches. Djokovic has won 30. In the majors, Nadal's won 11 against Djokovic. Djokovic has won seven in the majors. Yeah, the problem That's with that it. is so many of those are the French. I mean, you take yeah, out you the can. French. Well, and, okay, so I take out the French. You know, and he's, but, but three he's out of four, the four, he's four courses, and five. He's four and five if I take out the French. What about doing a median across tournaments, right? Because obviously the, Fre- the thing is the French is an outlier for Nadal. Just like, you know, the Australian Open is an outlier for Djokovic, just like Wimbledon is an outlier for Federer. But, like, if you look at, like, the number of majors they've won, like, the median of the number of majors they've won. Let me give you another argument. Let me, well, let me give you another argument. That, let me give you another argument for Nadal. Hold on. Let's, let's, hold on. let's answer Shane's question. So the median. The median is a little oh. funny because it's going to be between the third and fourth. Well, let's it's think Federer. about it. It's Federer. It's just eyeballing it's Federer. Yeah, Federer would have it. Yeah, because Federer is Federer's probably one. His probably median is five. Um, joke Nadal 5. is three because yeah. Nadal has 14, 4, 2, and 2, I think, is where Nadal is at. That's three. Uh, yeah, three. Um, Djokovic is less than that. Djokovic is for sure less than that. Yeah. Um, 
And also, the advantage Djokovic has, and, you know, I, look, I love Djokovic as a player. He's my least favorite of the big three. But the U.S. Open and the Australian are both on very similar and hard courts. So if we count, Adi, there's two of the four majors are on hard courts, which is clearly Djokovic's advantage, mm-hmm. one on grass and one on clay. So there's another thing that tilts in Djokovic's favor. Two yeah, of the see, four majors okay. are on hard courts. Okay, let me just, let's just stand up for a second and ask, well, what is tennis? It's a funny business, right? Because it is such a different game when played on clay and on hard court and even grass. So you have to ask yourself, when you decide what's the, you know, who's the greatest tennis player, are you looking for the, the kind of weighted average or the unweighted average? Or yeah. the, It's a funny business, right? You know, so I'll say, yeah, I mean, I, if I, there I, were one major on each of the three major surfaces, clay, grass, and hard courts, Djokovic wouldn't be in our discussion. You're taking the average of the Australian and the U.S. Open. That is correct. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, and, and weight them equally. Is, yeah. You know, but think about all the the the, 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 the tour, uh, the ones that that define the rankings. What fraction of them are what are what type? Do you have any mostly idea? That, mostly that surface. The vast majority are that surface. The vast majority, the hard courts. The hard courts. Yeah, so hard court is what people cut their teeth on it. What's defined a tennis player? Hard court. That's it. I mean, to me, that your performance on hard court should be at least seventy five percent of your ranking. He wants to go the opposite direction, Eric. He seems yeah, that's an, that, okay. Well, that's an opinion. That's an opinion. It's a hot take, people. Or, 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 I mean, again, if we were to compare these three players specifically in terms of the number of wagers they've won, I, I mean, I suggest the median because obviously we do have some out. You know, like we want to kind of try and get sort yeah. of this the center of this very kind of weird distribution. You could also just kind of look at their rel- the rankings of the number of wins. I mean, head-to-head probably is the right way to do it, and you already brought that up, and that does suggest Nadal. But if you were to rank them by the number of major wins that they've had on each of these surfaces, Nadal would only be the top on the French, right? In terms of hard court, I think, actually, Federer... Federer Federer has the most Wimbledon, for sure, and he may... I I think Djokovic might have just passed Federer for the who has more at the U.S. Open? Yeah, this, uh, no, uh, Federer's got five U.S. Open. Djokovic and has many, three. But the sum of the Australian and U.S. Open is eleven for Federer and twelve for Djokovic. Okay, so Federer. So, so let's just count it this together. way. And maybe this is. And also, by the way, this is just my own bias, but I think it's everyone's bias over the years. The Australian most people do not consider the same major as the other three. But you just said it. Federer has the most majors in two. Djokovic won and Nadal won. So again, I go back to if it was if there were only three majors, one on each type of surface, Djokovic would have less majors today. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. would. He would. And also, my my other opinion is that, and this is just from someone that watches a lot of tennis, I don't ever think Djokovic has been the best best player on any surface except for a short period of time on hard courts. He was never the greatest clay player, that's for sure, during his year. He's definitely not the greatest grass court player. And I saw, I've seen him get blown off the court in hard courts. So, again, I think things have now right. tilted in Nadal's favor. It's the I, longevity versus the dominance. It's just like Hall of Fame in baseball. It's an argument. 
And I, I, again, like Hall of Fame in baseball, it's it's pretty tough to sort of say, you know, kind of say like who is the I mean, maybe who is the absolute best baseball player that's ever lived. But you can distinguish, you know, I think we can all agree on kind of top, you know, tier, the top tier Hall of Famers, as, 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 as Eric brings them up uh, often. And we can all agree, at least in this one, we, we maybe can't agree in terms of who is the best among the three but all three of them it's kind of unique time in history that obviously they all three of them are top tier hall of fame tennis players you know i i mean would you or another question is in constructing a top three male tennis players of all time would you include anybody but these three no not even close no these would be the crazy that these would be the top era the other thing i would say not even close no no, okay. wow. I, the only other person, the only other person that could make a claim for that, had he played longer, in my view, would have been Bjorn Borg. Yeah. Bjorn Borg retired at age 26 with 11 majors. Wow. And wow. you start to think 11 majors by age 26. Oh, my God. I mean, he might have won 20, 25 if he had kept yeah. playing. And he had, you know, so that was that would be somebody that would be I think a lot of people would put in that. Class. No hardcore majors, though. No hardcore wins. Uh, that's the only one the French Open at Wimbledon. Yep, that's true. Never won. That's true because he wasn't the best hardcore player. McEnroe was better on the hardcourts. Lendl was better on the hardcourts. Connors was better on the hardcourts. He also played in an era of also four. I would call not top three, but other all-time greats who were also better on the hardcourts. The other thing I, 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 would... I want to make one observation about this argument, though. I think we're getting into sample sizes we don't usually have um, in these kinds right. of sports. I mean, at some point you're like. I don't need something fancy. I'm just going to add up the majors and look the head to head. Maybe I'll look at head to head in majors. And it's gotten to the point where Nadal just kind of wins that. And if you have to pick one, it's hard to, you have to start doing things like, you know, weighing my surfaces. And I, and I don't know. I think, I, I think there's something to be said for just super simple. We've got large samples on head to heads. We've got a lot of years of majors and one guy's beginning to kind of emerge. Yeah, I would say that. The other thing I would say is maybe, and again, I think everyone knows I've been the largest Federer fan for my entire life. So I still love Federer's game, but Federer racked up a few majors before Nadal and Djokovic even kind of got into the picture. And I would say that similarly, that Djokovic has racked up a bunch of majors in the last couple of years where Federer's been well past his prime yeah. and Nadal's been injured. Yeah, well, so but, that, fact- but Nadal has played during Federer's peak and Djokovic's peak. And that's so, the one so, slight difference, I would say. Exactly. No, I, 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 you don't like this, Shane? I really think it's, I think we don't do enough of this. If you really want to understand, I'm not saying you give them the actual crown, but if you really want to understand, you need to competitor, opponent adjust golf and basket, golf and tennis. I mean, it happens in golf all the time. I, I've never seen this analysis, but I would love to see like wins above expectation and wins below expectation. When you competitor adjust what happens, I mean, you know, one guy's, plays four nice rounds he's not in control of what another guy does you can play really well and somebody else goes off and that has to happen to people it'd be interesting to see the effect i'm, I'm assuming that some oh. people have a lot fewer victories because that's they're just bad I'm, luck i'm not arguing against that it's just you can't fault federer for racking up majors before no um, no 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 nadal no. came on the scene and then correspondingly be like oh well nadal goes be- better head to head against federer while where you just acknowledge that they're out of sync in terms of their peaks right yes you're right you no know, i mean i mean so if you're going to argue that nadal nadal was younger always younger when he played federer 
you know, so I mean, uh, really what you want to try and do is be like, oh, if, if, if Federer and Nadal's careers kind of lined up age-wise, and they unfortunately don't exactly, lined up age-wise, what would that head-to-head be? I thought, I, I agree, Shane, oh, I know. thought about that this week as well. If, if you could, there's a period by which, let's say, Djokovic and Nadal, who are roughly the same age, Nadal's 11 months older, but when they were, let's say, 23 to 28, so that's 12, 13 years ago, and Federer was 28 to 33 in that period. So he would have been that age when they were that age. Let's look at that five-year period. Let's look at the 20 majors that happened between whatever that would be, uh, 2009 and 2014, something like that. And how many majors did each of them have between 2009 and 2014? And my guess is it's going to be very close between okay. the three of them in the 2009 to 2014 range. What, what you guys are looking to do is create a, an ELO ranking that adjusts <laughs> for the surface and your potential injury status at any given point. Right. And, and, that, and then at the end of the day, you're going to get for each of these their, their highest ELO ranking by court. Um, and that can be done over all time, if you like. Um, and then you can kind of see wh- where they are. I would guess, no doubt, Nadal has probably hit, hit the highest yeah. you know, clay court ranking ever of all time. Um, the real question yeah, is... But, but, we're not, you, but now we're back to your peak versus longevity thing. Because well, that's no, because, right. So peak, and then, you can, then you, can take, you can take your, you know, what is integrate, your... You're going to integrate that thing over time? Yeah, you can integrate that and have a... And, and, and exactly, you can do that. You can, you can sort of weight them. It's, it's not impossible to do that, so... You want yeah. to see what's your highest five Actually, years by the way, that exists in ultimatetennisstatistics.com. They have the peak <laughs> ELO ratings overall, and then there's a drop-down menu, hard court, clay court, grass court, carpet, mm-hmm. et cetera. Just, nice. so you know, nice. peak, nice. just so you know, peak overall, we got, a, I mean, very interesting. Number one all-time, Novak Djokovic, age 28, 26, 29. Number two, by the way, Bjorn Borg, yes. 1980, 26, 22. Number three, John McEnroe. Mm. 25 83 then nadal then federer then connors and you know wow. etc um but uh, by the way if i go to clay then rafa nadal is actually number one but right near him actually very near him bjorn borg mm-hmm. very mm. very interesting if i go to grass actually <laughs> we're done this is where no, we're gonna no, stay no, for the rest no. of the show no, just, do this. just quickly, grass, <laughs> Federer's not number one. They have yeah. Borg and Laver ahead of him on yeah. the grass courts. And then Hardcourt, so Djokovic, and Federer right next to each other. So basically what you're saying is like that, that peak 11 uh, you know, majors in, uh, in, in, 11, in six years or whatever it was for Borg is unbelievably impressive. Yeah. Oh, Eric, give, unbelievably. That, give, give that website address. UltimateTennisStatistics.com. Dot com and then if you want to go to the actual thing slash peak elo ratings ultimate tennis <laughs> statistics.com slash peak elo ratings all right okay this is peak tennis discussion let's switch them up is anybody paying any attention to any other sports any team sports well, I mean, interesting uh, right yeah. baseball. i don't think the yankees have lost oh, no, since, since the let's, let's, let's talk a little nhl playoffs before <laughs> i mean baseball is going to be going on for the next five yeah, months nhl whatever, has been right? fantastic shane yeah, why don't you I, catch us all up i've been watching a lot yeah no for one thing i mean i i think i i mean the the, the broad strokes or whatever of course is i got my 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 beautiful battle of Alberta, and of course the Oilers beat the Flames. I didn't get. I got the exact same outcome I usually see when you see right. the battle of Alberta, but uh, so I was a little disappointed. And then the I I really think that the Oilers, 
kind of left it all on the ice in that series and didn't have a lot left in the tank when they went. Is up that your attribution? Them. It's, it's well, not just I, that they I, ran into no, a better I mean, team? I don't, I don't want to take credit away from the Avalanche. The Avalanche are an incredibly fast-paced team. And we can kind of talk about specific matchups about how, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, that uh, – what's his, that Cal Mecker, the, the defenseman, like really kind of took away Connor McDavid to a large part in the series, mm-hmm. um, or, or at least reduced kind of his, his usual, uh, usual influence. So, I mean, there's a lot of attribute. I, I don't want to take anything away from Colorado, but I do think the, I mean, the Oilers looked like a much slower team than Colorado on the ice in that, in that four game sweep that we just saw. And how much of that is, you know, slowness because of exhaustion from the battle of Alberta versus they would have just, you know, Colorado would have skated all over them regardless. That's kind of an yeah, right. interesting hypothetical. But regardless, right. Colorado skated all over them and yeah. are in the finals now. Yep. And so, it took some, you know, it I took guess some the work, West kind of went some, shock. In, it took you know, some work Indiana. last night, right? Because yes. I look at the score mid-game. I wasn't watching the game, but I saw the score. I was like, all right, the Oilers are going to get one. Yeah. And then, yeah, no. No, they I don't mean up, like that. They were up three to one at the end of this. There was five or six goals in the third period alone. The amount of scoring in this. This, the amount of scoring in the playoffs, that's kind of the other know, kind of broad story. The amount of scoring in these playoffs is off the charts, yeah. and I'm loving it. I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you used to, you know, a, a two like a two goal or three goal lead right. in the third period right. you know, is this insurmountable thing, and it is not these days. I mean, Colorado got back, you know, tied it up in like you know the span of five minutes. Right? Yeah. Were you Are you surprised? Is it? Um, common shame for teams just obviously the fatigue that heavily as game goes on because what I noticed was I was watching the game it seemed like the guys slowed down in the third period the score was three to one uh, Oilers at the end of the second period and six goals as you mentioned were scored in the third period yeah. is that is that the do we actually know the date on this are are more goals scored in the third period of a game I don't believe so. I, yeah, I, mean, go I don't know the data. I'd be worth, I mean, that would be sort of a pretty quick empirical question to answer, but I, I don't, I don't think so in general. Uh, but I mean, again, playoff hockey versus regular, I don't even think in the playoffs, it usually is the case. So it certainly has my, been notably the case in, in this year. Well, let my, me ask, sorry. But I had one anecdote, just an anecdote that goes against it, but my crazy uh, period of scoring was, I watched, I, I can't, I think it was Calgary, Alberta. I mean, I think it was Calgary, Edmonton. And I watched the first period is like one, nothing. I flip over to watch the basketball game. It's like Boston's going to clinch or something. And I missed the second period and I come back and they scored six or seven goals. In the I was probably period. game one where and it then, ended up nine, then, six or something. No, like they that. but scored a bunch at the beginning of that game. But um, yeah. and then I watched the third period. They didn't score any goals. So they scored like 12 goals. And I saw, and I saw two of the periods. Like I saw one goal. Well, yeah. So one of the things, by the way, um, of course, you ha- you have to truncate it because, right, there's empty netters and other stuff like that at yeah. the end of the third period. So you have to do that. But here's something interesting about the game tonight. So the Rangers well, are I- up to the Rangers are up to the Rangers are playing the Lightning tonight in Tampa Bay. OK, the Rangers are up two to one. Yeah. They were less than a period away from being up three to zero. OK, both teams scored one hundred and ten points in the regular season. So let's call them equal strength in the regular season. Of course, the lightning are the two time defending champs. Yeah. Does anybody want to guess what the betting line is tonight? Like who's favored and by how much? Oh, so, I would say, uh, 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 Tampa's favored by like yeah. at least 60 to 40. 
Yeah. I'm, I like that 60 40. It's got to be Tampa. They're supposedly it even is Tampa. strength. And it's they are the home Tampa. team. They should be yeah, kind of get, favored even at even. So we, what do we think home ice is? Home ice is not that much in hockey, but it's 55 45, maybe something like that. Yeah. 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 So, but, but people love the lightning. They love the story. Yeah. They love the history. The Rangers. Um, no, and, and their recent success, I think people just are scared to bet against them. It's interesting, kind of a fun fact about the Rangers. When the Rangers went up 2 nothing in that series, it, it broke the Tampa Bay Lightning streak of 17 wins coming after a playoff loss. So they hadn't lost wow. two in a row okay. in the playoffs, basically, since their whole, like, this, you know, for, like, the last four or five years. Well, just, you know, Tampa's minus 180 in the game, uh, which equates to, I think, a little higher, maybe. Yeah, it's so more than 60. Yeah. A little bit more than 60%. Um, it would just seem to me, but I agree with you, but also it's also where things can be deceptive. While the Rangers almost won game three, apparently I saw a stat, which was interesting, and Shane, you could attest this. It was the most shots the Lightning ever had in a playoff game. They had like 51 shots, and if it hadn't been for Sheshkin, I think is his name, the Rangers goalie, the score might have been 10 to 2. And so a lot of people are basically saying, yeah, the Rangers sort of were in that game, except the Lightning just like doubled the number of shots, and this just can't go on. Like, this goalie's hot. But if if Tampa keeps getting double the number of shots, it, I don't care how hot this goalie is, they're not winning. That's right. That's right. And we saw that kind of very early on in the playoffs, the, the, the Dallas Stars against the Calgary Flames series. It was a similar thing where the Flames were almost doubling the number of shots of the Stars. And that thing went to seventh game, went to overtime of the seventh game. So, mm-hmm. But the Flames, did, the Flames did come out ahead. All of that is to say that – we say that, yeah, if, if you're kind of winning the battles on kind of the, I guess you'd call them the hockey peripherals or whatever, that should translate into outcomes. In the course of a seven-game series, I'm not I, I think I think the kind of, the lesser team could still sneak it out. I don't know. Shane, so, Shane just a quick quick aside. Can you remind us what you mean by peripherals? It's a, it's a term. Well, I, I, I mean, sometimes. really what we're talking about is, is kind of almost like goal opportunities, shot, shots on goal, all these kind of things. Like the things that you do, to kind of like to, to lead to, you know, to lead to goals. But of course, goals themselves are a much more kind of stochastic realization of those things. And we say peripherals across sports because for what example, what are peripherals? Well, in yeah, I, I, I kind of make it analogous to like something like, like in baseball, uh, one example of a pitcher's peripheral would be their whip, the number of walks and, and, and hits they allow per innings pitch that doesn't directly lead to the, the runs or runs scored against them are the outcome. But of course, you know, if and if you're not doing well with the peripherals, you're probably not going to do well with, you know, the actual outcome, which is runs scored. Well, another way but they're, to, they're not they're You know, one's a stochastic realization of the other. Yeah, Another way, Shane, to put it is if I had told you the number of shots taken by each of the teams in game three, I guarantee you, you would have predicted a much greater differential than three to two. Lightning. Right. And you might have predicted a more total goals also for the lightning than three forget whether how many the rangers are going to score you would have predicted well Shosheskin's not saving 48 out of 51 shots which is actually what he ended up saving one last note on the turn is it safe to say that when we say focus on the process peripherals are a way of measuring the process is that is that a fair it's yeah, yeah no i mean tight. you know things like shot opportunities shots on all these things are much more of a kind of measure of how much offensive dominance you're displaying in a game a hot goaltender can kind of keep that from actually leading to the outcome you want but i mean you know i mean you do want to kind of i mean in the you would rather have that offensive dominance than not have it certainly and i think that you know you know across many games and again this is why we would sort of predict that the tampa bay would have kind of advantage in the series if they 
you know, continue that dof- dominance across well, many games. It should translate to outcome too. Well, that's kind of the, the tougher betting line is yeah. series. Who's going to win the series. And I bet it sounds like it might be 50, 50 or so in the market. Cause people are thinking Tampa ought to win the game, but they've still got to, they're down the game. So yeah, that's right. That'll, that'll be a fun. I think they may be just sheeps to the slaughter as soon as they, whoever has to go face the ads. By the way, right now, well, the, by the way, 538 has, well, obviously the avalanche, it has a 66, by the way, whoever faces them, they have right now, the avalanche is a two to one favorite, yeah, exactly, just to exactly. let you know, yeah, but yeah. Mm-hmm. it still has not surprisingly, cause they're up two games to one. The Rangers are 21% probability in the Lightning. Basically, they have the Rangers as a, almost a two-to-one favorite right now over the Lightning, which does surprise me a little bit. Well, unfortunately, as much as I love those guys, their, their numbers on the NBA have undermined my confidence in their models. Speaking of which, we've only got a few minutes to the top of the, the bottom of the quarter. Um, NHL, I mean, NBA, 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 man, we had this incredible, we have NBA guests in Q4, but let's talk a few minutes about it because game three is tonight. We're recording Tuesday. It goes up Wednesday. Game three is tonight. They're moving back to Boston, right? They play two. Correct. Two, 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 two one, one, one. Um, that's a big, that's a big travel schedule. Those last three across country. Um, What's your, what are your reactions? I missed the game the other night. The one that the, the Warriors won by whatever, 25 or something. It was a big gap. Um, what's your take on the series? It's a defensive war. It's a, it's a totally defensive series. Both teams are somewhat deficient on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and so to me, it's going to be which team is just, you might say, well, how can you be deficient when you have Clay Thompson and, you know, Steph Curry? Well, all right. Let's imagine you put all your effort into stopping those two guys. How much are you worried about Wiggins and Draymond Green and Kevin Looney and Poole and these other guys beating you off on the offensive side? So I, I'm shocked, but I think this is a defensive battle in this series. And whichever team is better defensively is going to win. And that's why I think the Celtics are slightly favored because they were the better defensive team in the second half of the season. They were the best defensive team in the NBA by far the second half of the season. It's worth noting that we have like the, like uh, that uh, uh, Neil Payne. I think I mean we've been kind of slamming a little bit the five thirty eight projections just because they do seem they have seemed kind of, kind of a little wonky. He I mean he has an article right now on basically a, almost acknowledging that that they you know they're they're overly bullish on the Celtics, but that perhaps you know the kind of public opinion is a little bit overly bullish on Golden State. That Boston really does kind of have you know, like, like looks like it should, it should be favored, maybe not at 80% or whatever they had going into the series, but should. Well, what have we learned? What have we learned um, from the first two games? Of course, the Celtics picked one up on the road, which is advantageous to them, but they sure did lose that second one in Mm -hmm. grand style. If I wanted to make an argument for the Warriors, here's just quickly summary. Warriors have won five quarters. They've tied two quarters and they've lost one quarter. So if you if you take out that one quarter of game, the fourth quarter of game one, you can easily make an argument the Warriors should be up to zero and they've played better basketball. So if I had to move things, especially from since the- that quarter, there was like Boston's probably not going to replicate the three point success they had in that quarter. Exa- right? it, great, great point. So, yep, I'm agreeing with you. I would say if you're the Warriors right now and you were an 80, tw- let's believe you're an 80, 20 underdog to start the series. You have to be encouraged, even though you've only split the first two at home. They, they didn't play like a four to one underdog. How about that? Right. Well, um, what about Gary Payton Jr.? Is he back? Was he already he back? Was he part of their defensive effort the other night? He did play the other night. He didn't play a massive role, 
but he was back. As far as I know, the Warriors are at 100% full strength, except Andre Godala only played like a couple of spot minutes. But yeah, he's back. Everyone's playing. Otto so, Porter Jr., everyone's back. The, there have been a couple of interesting articles about these two teams in the last week or so. There was an ESPN piece about the moves that Brad Stevens made. Brad, of course, was the head coach for uh, three, five, four years, three or four years. Now president, first year as president, was instrumental on a number of these acquisitions they made that you know things are working out well. We don't want to just judge it by how it works out, but it's interesting to, to see the details behind the scenes on how he put this roster together. And then there was, a, there was a neat one right now. I think it's again ESPN. Maybe, maybe Zach Lowe on the, on the acquisition by, of Wiggins. And so essentially a key piece for the Warriors as well. And it really helps you appreciate how important in a game like basketball, individual player acquisitions and these really monumental decisions that front offices make. Two, I think, of the best front offices in the NBA, which makes this finals all the more interesting. All right, guys, that has been another quarter. We've still got two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to Q3, another open sports quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We've got the whole crew in here. Going to continue the conversation that we just had in Q2. I want to start it, fellas. I want to start it with some college sports. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think they're really that much better right now than they typically are, but they sure have my attention more. Are, are y'all watching the Women's College World Series at all? I kind of feel like maybe that women's sports is, a, is discovering its killer app. I think, so, I think softball might be the killer app for women's sports. I don't think softball gives much up to baseball. In fact, these days, given how boring baseball has gone, it's actually more action and more interesting and faster paced than baseball is. It is. It's a fun sport. I've been watching it quite a bit of it, actually. So um, they're they're in the, the the story all year long has been the Oklahoma Sooners. They've only lost two games, I think, all year. Maybe they lost they lost another one the other day for the first for the third time. So uh, just a killer team. They they they're in the semifinals. No losses, double elimination. So UCLA goes up there and beats them the first game. <laughs> Did y'all see this? And then they're like, okay. They play the second game like a half hour later. They play the second game, and they skunked them 15 nothing mercy rule after five innings. They just, just beat the hell out of them. And that's the kind of juggernaut OU is. My Texas Longhorns snuck into the finals. They, they're unseated. They, they, had, they had to do what UCLA tried to do to OU yesterday. They played Oklahoma State. They're down a loss. So they can't win. They have to win two in a row. They beat them once. They play this doubleheader right afterwards, and they beat them again, and they're into the finals against OU. Now, really, we talked about lambs to the slaughter. Um, I think it's not going to be pretty. But Texas OU for women finals um, coming up, I think, Wednesday night. It'll be a two out of three. Um, men's side, I'm going to ask What's the you line all, on that, by the way? Do you know the, what's the I line? Don't, I don't know the line. It's got to be interesting. It's like how much better would be OU team than a sneaking in Longhorn team? Oh, the Texas it did give them one of those losses. They took the, yeah. the Big 12 tournament, but I don't know. That's got to be two thirds, one third, I'm guessing. For That's the, pretty for close. The, for the I series. More, for, yeah. I, I don't really know, but for the series, I would put it something like that. Guys, uh, the, the, the men are into super regionals. So this is the this is the round of sixteen. They're, they play two out of three um, in pairs. 
to go to the College World Series. So they've just played the regionals. That's they set the field, 64 teams. It starts out just like the basketball tournament. 16 of those teams advanced to this round. 16. How many seeds do you think we have left? They have the, the, the regional hosts. There are 16 regional hosts. Those are the seeds, seeded one through 16. Mm-hmm. We have 16 teams left now as of yesterday. How many unseeded teams do you think made the round of 16? It was 64 teams or 32? 64. So they were all in 14 tournaments. Yep. Each yep. of these seeded teams were in 14 tournaments to advance to this round. Well, if let me say um, – under the null that there's no strengths differences, you might expect four, right? Right. Um, so I'm not going to pick that number. Um, eight seems a little bit high, even for a team that might be, you know, 51, six. Well, that would, that, if one team had half the probability in each, it would be eight. So somewhere between four and eight, I'm going to shade towards eight, seven or eight, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. And you pick, and you only go higher or lower than that. Eric set the, uh, the over under. I'll go lower just because I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I, I got to kind of take my, my coin flip philosophy into like into, uh, you know, in, into the college sport, even though it is different. So, okay, Adi, I just go higher just to be contrary, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Well, you, what you guys think about it? I mean, how, you, how do you think talent is distributed in college? Yeah, it, you'd think that there's some pretty damn amazing college teams. That, that if, yeah. if it's anything like football, it falls off fast. Um, but I, I mean, football. talent is very unevenly distributed at major in major league teams, and we still essentially have coin flips come like really like like two game two or three like three games. Well, but I, but Shane, the difference here is there's 64 teams. I'm not saying it's not coin flips. Maybe once you get down to the final 16, but I'm saying there could be a big difference between could be 16 could and then I, you know 17 I, to 16. Yeah, and also those yeah. are professionals at college. Remember, a huge number of these these players theirs are are you know they're not professional players big gap between the quality of a college team at the top and at the bottom. So I'm All right. Off. So the answer, the answer is 11. Yeah. And I, I don't know how representative that is, but a couple of two seeds, three, two seeds got in two, three seats got in. And then none of the four seats got in. So 11 of the 16 advanced and the seeds look pretty good. Cause the ones that get knocked out that 13, 15 and 16 all got knocked out. So there were only the six and seven got knocked out. So it's seeds are doing something there. We've got the super regionals. And I picked up some stats. I asked on, on Twitter today who could help us with some updated power rankings. And you we've know, got at Stats Award. At Stats Award does real involved um, breakdowns of each of these regionals and now the super regionals. And so he's got some power rankings and he gives us chance of chance of winning for each of the eight super regionals. And one of them really stands out as definitive. We got here's a team to keep your eye on, apparently. And this isn't news to anybody who's following college baseball. Tennessee, Tennessee's 81% to advance to the College World Series. Nobody else is even in the 70s. Got a Do you have a, uh, a future Hall of Famer on their pitching staff? Is that what we're looking at? Here? Yeah, the guy's got some – he's got this crazy this, – this got a lot of heat. They've got a pitcher with a lot of heat. And that can carry uh, one good pitcher. You've got a shutdown pitcher. That's like a guaranteed win. And these two out of threes and these double eliminations are really helpful. I mean, anyway, yeah, all right. These are going to be top first-round draft picks. <laughs> So that's where we're on baseball. One last, one last note, guys. I've got, you know, I always talk about the format for the NCAA golf tournament, how much fun that is. I talked about it last week, and then Texas went out and won the damn thing. So just a little bit of celebration for Longhorn Golf. You guys know some golfers who have been on the teams who've won that before. That was mm-hmm. UT's fourth 
fourth national championship. The first two were back-to-back in 71 and 72. Do you know who was playing golf for Texas in 71 and 72? Well, was it was Ben Crenshaw one of the players? Yes, Crenshaw and Tom Kite. Those guys. In okay. fact, in wow. 72, yeah. in 72, they shared medalists. They were the co-medalists in that tournament. And then 40 years later, they won their third. Do you know who was on the 2012? Spieth? Texas Spieth. Spieth was a freshman. Yeah, the reason and, I, you know, he, I would have. You know, he beat in the finals. They played Alabama. The match won. The, the Justin Thomas, match. probably, right? Justin Thomas for, the, for, the, for Alabama. And the coaches. Oh. The coaches agreed, a gentleman agreement, to put them together. So usually you play your top against like somebody else's, you sacrifice somebody. Mm-hmm. They agreed to put those guys together in the fourth match, and it was this epic thing. The reason okay. I knew Crenshaw and Kite just quickly together is because they had a very famous instructor. His name is Harvey Pennick, who was the same instructor for both of them. It's kind of this known documentary that went, and so that's Eric, why he was knew- the. He was the Texas golf coach that year. Oh, he was, okay. He was I the didn't actual know. Coach on the, okay. On the so he, but he was also both of their mentors, Kite and Crenshaw. Well, when you hear those kinds of guys have won in the past, you you wonder who on this team might go on. So they, they've got a couple of guys who are grandchildren. You, have, you ever heard, have you ever heard of Charles Cootie? Charles Cootie won the Masters. In of course. Seven. His twin grandsons were on this national championship team for Texas. Um, so maybe those guys, one of those guys are going, okay, one quick transition before we yield the floor to Audie and a little baseball golf, speaking of golf, anything interesting happened on golf lately? Any news? Well, very interesting. I mean, a couple quick things. One is the, um, the first of the Saudi Arabia tournament back tournaments is happening this week in, uh, just outside of London. Um, you know, a number of top players are going to be playing, including Dustin Johnson, um, and the PGA has again basically forbid them from playing it. And so, you know, they've resigned their PGA Tour membership. Uh, Dustin Johnson did, Sergio Garcia did, and a few others. Um, the majors, have, at least the U.S. Open, which is the following week, has just said, no, they can play. They qualified. They get to play. Well, that's, in- a different, that's a different governing body. Right. right? It's, a different, it's the USGA versus the PGA. So it's a different mm-hmm. governing body. It'll just be interesting to see. Tiger has said he's not playing the U.S. Open. He's not healthy enough to play. He's going to hopefully play the British Open. I think golf is just very interesting to see what's going to happen to golf. And, you know, what will end up happening is there may end up being two different major tours or something like that. And... My only question is, uh, you know, will winning a major count the same if half the great players are now playing in some other higher oh, money okay. potential tour? Okay, that's a good line, but that's not half the great players. I mean, there's one no, guy not yet, not yet. Okay, okay, not and yet. Th- this wouldn't necessarily be as relevant to the majors, right? Like, right, the majors, the masters could let anybody play that they choose yeah. to play, and but also, yeah, no, absolutely, I mean, the PGA Championship, fair. I guess, might get further reduced in, 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 in kind of <laughs> prominence just because it, it would presumably out, be the only one that would be tied to I, PGA membership or something like that. Yeah, well, Eric, one line actually, about it, Eric, point, actually make the, go ahead, Eric. No, I should say your point's entirely right. Who's probably chosen this? Dustin Johnson, age 37, 38, you could argue he's near the end of his peak. Sergio Garcia's over the age of 40. So you pay big money for these guys that have won majors, pay them a hundred million bucks. And they're like, how many more PGA tournaments am I actually winning? What are my chances really of winning another major? They're the right target market for these other tours to go after. Like they went after Tiger Woods and obviously everybody would like Tiger Woods, but how many more tournaments and majors is Tiger Woods winning? This is exactly the right target. 
Well, you, so, so that's, I think I agree with that mostly. And one of the best examples is Lee Westwood. I, I was yeah, Lee pulling for Lee Westwood, but he's not, he's not really a threat. Now, Oosthausen um, uh, had a great year, was like top five in like three yeah. or four of the majors recently. Yeah, I think he's probably, uh, we could look other than Dustin, he's probably the highest ranked and he's always fun to watch in majors. He's got this sweet swing, but I think the majors question actually could be even more interesting if it's the kind of thing where guys don't usually compete against each other because they're in different tournaments and, and different um, leagues. And then the majors are the only time you see them all in the course at the same time. That kind of makes it more fun. And for next week, I will study up about the format of this Saudi league because it's very interesting. There's part teams. There's part this, part that. I will have it studied by next week. So I know you like tournament design, Cade. It's not just the same design as the PGA. There's a team component and others. Yeah, that's a great question, Eric, because they've, they've done this thing from scratch. And so presumably they've done everything they could think of to make it as compelling as possible. It's more than just the it's more than just the names. They've come up with the different structures. That's a great question. Now, do y'all have any opinions? Are we going to broach the, any reactions to Dustin Johnson retiring his, resigning his card today? I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I've got strong opinions about this. Are we talking about this? We're not going to, it's not analytics. (laughs) Come on, man. Go for it. This is, I mean, it's, it's just full on, taking a check and signing your ethics away. It's Saudi money. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's a rough thing to see happen. And I think it's a, there's a very good reason that almost nobody has done it. It's more than just the PGA's threats. It's just these guys, one, they already make so much money. I mean, I know it's easy for us to say, I know when you start making, if, if Lockheed money, Martin sponsored a PGA tournament and somebody played in it, would you have similar feelings? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's a fair comparison. Lockheed Martin versus the Saudi government. Well, wait, I, but all right. Is it the actual Saudi royal prince? No, it's the, it's the, it's, like, it's, the invest, it's their investment fund. It's the. It's the. It's the. You know the what you call it. Okay. Yeah, yeah there's right, there is a there's right? a sovereign investment fund. It's a sovereign fund. Yeah, exactly. Sovereign. Yeah, I've never heard anyone complain about Chinese money. We ought to complain about it more. You damn right we should. I mean, well, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I, Let me just comment. Hold on. Hold on. Let me bring it back to statistics and, <laughs> yeah. and business just for a second. The amount of money they offered Dustin Johnson is more money. Just to show up and play in this is more money than he'll ever make. He, they offer, he's getting paid $125 million. And so that's more money than he will make on the PGA Tour for the rest of his career. It's more money than anybody's made in total on ever on the PGA Tour. And so it's hard to argue from that point of view. I'm with you, Cade. I think there's different, different types of money are worse than others. But from a purely financial perspective, that's not even this prize money. That's his show up fee, $125 million. Not bad job if you can get it. It's, it's easy for us to say. It's, it's easy right. for us to say, especially with that kind of money. But um, man, oh, man. Adi, what do you got on baseball front, man? Well, I did a little d- drill down. Uh, as you all are aware, the Yankees are winning games just every single time. I don't think they lost since our last recording. Um, and they have a winning percentage of over 720 at this point. So the question is, what's the forecast going out? And, and, what, and what are the assumptions that affect that forecast? So obviously, if you just uh, um, roll over what, what people might like to say on pace, which what we in statistics would call the maximum likelihood estimator, uh, um, just take the past and roll it forward, you'd expect 720. That would break all records for wins in a season. I think nobody thinks that's going out. Fangrass, interestingly enough, predicts the Yankees to win 56% of their games going out. 
they think at least four, if not five teams are better than the Yankees going forward. I thought that was a pretty odd thing to be forecasting. Um, yeah. Do you want to guess which of the teams that they think are this good? Well, they, the Dodgers, Dodgers have always, the Dodgers are definitely ranked above. Yes, I would say are. the Mets are probably the Mets are probably ranked above. Astros. No, you see, so I, du- I dug in a little bit. Um, so it's not the Mets, and uh, and then you can see what what's driving fan. So yeah, they're they're only predicting the Yankees to win ninety eight games going um, into Braves. The Braves, the so Braves, the Braves they have at, right behind the Dodgers, and the other two are the Jays and the Astros. Now, these are very good teams, but I'm not asking. We're not. I'm not. This is not Fangraphs forecast for the final number of wins. It's the Fangraphs forecast for what yeah. they expect going yeah. out. So in yeah. other words, they're disc heavily, heavily discounting the first 54 games of the season. How much of that and, is schedule strength? I mean, does schedule strength change around? Schedule strength is in here. It's That's huge. true. But I think it's, it's not. It's uh, um, well, mostly it's shrinkage. Um, just a Bayesian shrinkage that nobody's that good. I mean, they basically think that the true winning percentage of the best team in any winning in any, in any year, that what I mean by the true, if you played, if they got to hypothetically play a hundred thousand games in a season, they probably think the best team in a, in a season is, is just around 600. Worth, worth noting I, I that the Yankees are the, like the fifth team, yes. like since 1985, I think to have a, as good of this, as good a record as this at this That's point. That's right. In the and so the heavily discounted going out that they're this good. Um, I, I forecast the Yankees to win over a hundred. Um, I was about to say, Adi and I are taking the over on a hundred. But how, how did you decide how much to shrink? Well, you know, the way I would shrink is I just looked historically. So a um, a, a, a seven hundred team has happened twice in the last you know fifty years, um, and that means it's about a three standard deviation event. Um, so that means I go for an SD of around point seven. I mean seven percent. Throw in a little bit of randomness after fifty four games, and that's what I'm shrinking back towards. So and, you, um, like you said, an SD of seven percent. Yeah, so that means if you just look at the distribution of, you, know, you think of it's, you know, we, I'd have to have a whole show to talk about. Or I mean, if you want to talk about historical preference, those those <laughs> yeah. five, it's one of five. They're one of five teams to been have a record this good at this point of the season. All four of those other teams did finish over a hundred uh, with yeah. over a hundred wins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, I, mean, I think I think it's a, a thing, a good thing to dig into for us, Adi, because we talk about shrinkage, but we mm-hmm. kind of wave our hands at it all the time. And it's good. That's fine. You waving your hands out is better than not doing it, but uh, you went through the process of coming up with an actual number. And so it'd be worth, let's come back to that. It's a good exercise for, you know, the next few months anyway, as we project out of baseball, let's come back to it as a good exercise for thinking through how not to just linearly extrapolate. Linear extrapolation is not typically the right way to go. And so let's give people a little more to work with on that. All right, guys, that's, that's been three quarters. We still got a quarter to go. Good interview coming up. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter is our interview segment, at least has been for the last couple of years. We are delighted today, this week. To welcome back to the show, Dean Oliver, longtime friend of the show. Been a little while since, at least since, since I've seen you, Dean, but delighted to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining. Yeah, good to be back. Good to see, uh, see you all and hear what you guys are talking about. Well, we're going to talk about you for the next half hour. <laughs> uh, as, as many listeners know, Dean is a real pioneer in sports analytics. He's the author of the book, Basketball on Paper, which was one of the real first analytics efforts on basketball. But he also distinguishes himself from run-of-the-mill analysts by having 
dabbled with actual teams. And not only is he dabbling now, but he's working with the Wizards. And his title is assistant coach. How many analysts get the title? Anything, coach. So, Dean, we want to know what's up, man. How did you end up in this position? What's it involve? And in general, what's going on in your life these days? Yeah, I guess it's been a while since uh, we talked because, yeah, I've been doing it for three years uh, here with the Wizards. And the uh, it, it kind of happened. I was uh, thinking about getting back on the team side. And uh, I knew a variety of people around the league, of course. And the opportunity to join a coaching staff wasn't even in, in my head at the time. But uh, I think the idea of doing it was just to have a more day-to-day analytical voice uh, with the coaching staff. And I will say it's, it's, it's a challenge because of the nature of analytics itself. Uh, analytics itself is very much about big sample sizes. Uh, like you like to have a good amount of sample size. So some of the things that you deal with on the coaching side are much smaller sample sizes, uh, plays uh, even, and like how you design a play and things like that. And um applying analytics to that is, is much more difficult. So it, it creates a challenge and I, I certainly was ready for a challenge. I thought about some of the things uh, before I took the job and there are other things I definitely didn't anticipate, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what's Dean, hard. give us an example of something you didn't anticipate. Oh, I, I think some of the, uh, just some of the, the day to day, um, working with players and thinking of like thinking about drills to run, for instance, like I, that was not what I was thinking of even not just for me to implement, but for how do these actually help us? And because in many ways, my job is to think about, okay, if other guys are building these drills, how do these help us? And what is the data that we can use can collect to evaluate those things? It's, I, it's something that I hadn't thought about. I was still thinking about, okay, maybe some play design, what play types. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Dean, remind, tell us, days. tell us what drills look like in, in the NBA. You know, we all grew up playing some basketball. You do your little figure yeah. eights, you do your layups, you, you know, basic things. And you do wonder when you see pregame drills, how much of it is just tradition versus how much has been kind of engineered. And I'm guessing yeah. not that much. I think engineered drills from an analytic perspective have not been done extensively because it is not, there isn't not a lot of data to help you do that. And, and what are you, there are studies, there are a lot of studies out there that have looked at things to some degree on it. Okay. Should you take the same shots over and over again? How much does that build muscle memory and things like that? It's not super conclusive on how much you should do at, especially at the NBA level, because a lot of these studies are more at youth level and these guys are at a different level. So how do we, how do I interpret some of that thing? And, and then we have to balance it with the very practical aspect of the NBA, which is uh, load management, I guess yeah. is what it's called. And how many drills can you run without compromising their legs and fatigue and uh, it's not, none of this is, and how do we even measure fatigue? <laughs> it, I'm getting the sense that you're like three years into this and you have more questions than you have answers. Is that, you guys are academics in many ways. You should appreciate that. Oh, a hundred percent. 
Well, Dean, so how big a part of your world are wearable devices and motion tracking and all the kinds of things that in theory are, um, you know, let's call them quote unquote objective measures of speed, fatigue, et cetera? Uh, They are definitely part of my world. It's how do I join all of these pieces of information together? And I can tell you, uh, it's funny because there are opportunities to evaluate uh, whether guy instincts, coaching instincts are actually correct. And it is amazing the number of times coaching instincts are correct about things like being fatigued, for instance. Um, Like a guy, okay, the guy is going to run out of gas and they're just going to stop running at around this point. We'll make predictions along those, those lines. And like some of the coaches are dead on mm-hmm. they can and they're reading all sorts of things that we don't have measurements on they're looking at guys faces they're looking at their body language and things like that we don't have objective measurements on so i am constantly feeling like eventually we can get measurements on those things but right now okay i'm going to listen to these guys and and look for ways to validate because they're not always right either they're, they definitely mm-hmm. have times where they're wrong and I'm trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you, what does the interface look like where you are with the Wizards NBA basketball team with between analytics and the traditional decision makers? Like what is, are you the interface? Do you have little working groups? Does it depend on the topic, but where do the numbers kind of run up next to the decision makers and what happens at that exact interface? Well, I think not only for us, but I think around the league now there's, there's a series of reports that go out regarded, regarding any decision that the front office may have to make, trades, free agency, the draft, all of those kind of things. Same thing with coaching staff. Uh, when you're preparing for opponents, when you're evaluating yourself, I think there are a series of reports. Some of those change. Um, my objective is not to just be a report pusher, but to uh, try, hopefully, with some success to educate people on what metrics are a little bit better for that and which ones yeah. are worse. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt I have failed in some of those efforts and some of them have <laughs> been a little bit better. Um, there's, so a there's, a, there's, a, there's a tension, right? Because you want to some extent you have to give them what they want. So they actually read the dang report, but you're also trying to upgrade the nutritional quality of what you're feeding them. At the that, same that, time, is, right? that is exactly right. And I don't, um, and you don't want to be too contrarian either because you want to make it clear that you're on their side yep. and you're trying to do it. So you can't go into everything and say, okay, what, why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Um, and frankly, that doesn't, ha- that doesn't happen too often. But there are, there are, I can definitely say, why are we doing this about a lot of things if just because I don't have data to support it. And so it's not a contrarian view. It's just okay, we think this is going to help them be better dribblers or something like that. And it's, there's no reason to do that all the time. There's times, there's times and places to do that. And I I don't know how well I pick those. Well, you're talking about the thing that's fundamental to being a good analyst. And there's just, it's, 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 it's building rapport, building relationships while also, having a very different perspective and it turns out those things are tough to do. And, but unfortunately they're both necessary. Dean, talk about your evolution as an analyst over these last three years, or maybe it might even be interesting to think about 
the ways in which you think you succeed now that you might not have if you'd had this job 20 years ago? Like, what, what is it that, because you're in a really, really tough, it's a neat position, but it's a tough position to be in. And so you got it, you're kind of mustering all you've learned from a, a career in this stuff. In what way do you think, what tools do you have now that you didn't have before? Or what tools have you developed kind of quickly over the last few years? You're probably still developing them, but you have some sense of this. Yeah, constantly developing them. I'm much better now at being able to pull out information that is relevant to how we improve the players that we have. Uh, 20 years ago, I was very good at predicting how good players could be, measuring how good they were. There wasn't a whole lot of information about plays, play types, play calls, um, details of rebounding, details of how guys get open, shot quality. Now, a lot of that stuff is available. It's still not necessarily the easiest to apply it to make things uh, mm -hmm. make things work, but I'm much better at knowing we can get answers to a lot of questions. It may take some, in some cases it may take a couple hours. Sometimes it may take a couple months, but <laughs> um, you know, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And depending upon the importance of those things and the time frame that people care about and in the coaching time frame, you, you don't have a ton of time. So I try to focus on the things that I can get an answer to between now and the next game. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. the the answers you're giving there are they usually to coaches what to what extent are you working with coaches and to what extent are you working with players and one of the reasons i think this is an especially interesting question is because we often talk to analysts who say i don't talk directly to the players because I, that's not my job right that's not my language or i'm not credible i i my my information even if it's about a player needs to go to the coach and the coach is going to be the one that does the communicating, but you're an actual coach. So how does it work to be the analyst and the coach? And, and even that is a little bit of a balance. I have to play now because there are things that I will, I'm comfortable going to the, the players about um, because they are analyses that generally support some of the things that we want to do. But then there are other things like, Oh, this came up when I was talking to a player and I probably should go talk to coach about it to make sure it's on the same page. Uh, so, yeah. And I, I, I feel like there is a little bit of a handcuff, just a self-imposed handcuff in terms of making sure that uh, what I'm saying is in line with the general philosophy, because a lot of stats are um, at the level of more philosophy than the details of, Oh, okay. This is how you should put your hand up to shoot. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Hold on. You got to give us an example of a stat that has a philosophical question mark on it, like something that you that one club might philosophically support and some other club might not philosophically support. I think I mean, a simple example is how often do you help off the, the strong side corner three point shooter. Like mm -hmm. There are some teams that do that to some degree. Um, very few do it a lot. But um, like what is the level that we, you should do that? And when should you do that? And there, there's stats for like, oh, yeah, they, these guys help off the strong side corner 20% of the time, 30% of the time, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just wondering, uh, Dean, how much of the work that you do actually gets generated by player requests at this point? Like as analytics, has it permitted enough down to players where a player will come to you, you know, what's my shooting percentage going left and right? Do you have any suggestions on how to cover this player versus that player based on the data? Or is all of it kind of still more top-down? Uh, I would say still the majority is top-down, but I, there are definitely players, and I won't mention their names, who 
ask me for some of those details and they they're good. And I, I like working with those guys who have those kind of questions and we have useful conversations where, oh, okay, this might've been too much information. This might've been not exactly what they want. And sometimes I know that, okay, the data may not be as good as we want. I can tell you something as simple as driving left versus driving right. Sometimes you get the Chris Paul who will drive left and then come back right. And how is that classified in the stats? Is mm. yeah, gets a little murky. So sometimes they may ask that question and I have to be careful because I know the stats are not collected mm. the way we would like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that it fits. That's a that's a that's a simple example, but a good example of being modest about our data, or not being too religious about our data, because ultimately models are imperfect and imperfect, and data all are commonly imperfect. Dean, yeah. we want to get to talking some about the current finals, which are so much fun, and we'd love your yeah. perspective on it. But one, one last question, because you have gone into teams and then out of teams and back into teams, you were with you know you've been with multiple sophisticated analytics shops. How is it for you right now to be focused on a single organization? You know, you've built models that people use in the whole industry. You've built models that major media platforms use. That's very different from one particular organization. And you're like very siloed right now, but it's deep. So how are you experiencing those trade-offs? And, and how, how would you characterize those trade-offs for the rest of us since you've been in and out of it so much? It is a, it is a good question. I do. Um, I enjoy working for a team. I, I think. The hardest part about working for team is sometimes interviews like this, where I can't tell you all the stuff that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, I have to silence myself, but uh, we are doing really good stuff. We have a pretty good team here. We've got um, actually a, a deeper team than I've had in place else. Uh, in terms you mean of by that the an- analytics teams, analytics team in yep. turn. Yeah. Uh, on an NBA uh, with an N- NBA franchise and at ESPN had a good team there. Uh, so I was able to do that. Um, but yes, it is more superficial at the, at the media level. I think at ESPN, we tried to be deep, but what gets put out there is, is not necessarily the deepest part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes for good reason. Uh, sometimes I, I think we had to curate the, the message better and it, it was, it was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about, you know, that you, you get to touch every organization or, 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 or the whole yeah. consumer landscape, but kind of superficially versus you only get to touch one, but you're working in incredible detail. It's a real privilege yeah. to work a level of detail. Uh, the Wizards are a great group. Tommy Shepard is um, someone I've known a long time. And one of the things that I definitely missed by not working with a team was this concept that we're winning and losing together. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. Uh, being with these guys and struggling through it. And they're, they're, I can tell you, being on the road, you, one of the hardest parts about this job is for six months, you sleep six hours or less a night. Um, and you're on the road. You don't get it. There are nights you do get in it at 4 a.m. And that's rough. Yeah. But you're doing it a lot together. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's neat. Very neat. All right. Let, we're talking with Dean Oliver, by the way, if you guys missed the introduction. Dean, uh, basketball on paper, author, creator. I mean, I think of you as a creator of uh, ESPN's FPI model for at least one of the yeah. co-creators, but really the brains behind that model, which has gone on to seed other models um, and has been in and out of NBA teams over his career 
as well. Um, guys, we, we haven't been together to talk about the NBA finals. We, we, we saw it shaping up this way, anticipated it. Um, two interesting games so far. I'm sure the guys have some questions as well, but I'm curious how you're experiencing it so far, Dean. What's your, what's your like, expert opinion on what's interesting about this series? Uh, I'll start off with what's, what's hard is that it's, it's very hard being eliminated um, and not being able to be there. So it's yeah. always hard to watch them. Uh, I do, and you I have to separate myself a little bit and sit back and be analysts. What can we learn from these teams? And we have two of the, we have either the top two or two of the best three defenses in the NBA playing right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. of course, media coverage generally focuses on who's scoring. And so I'm looking at these defenses and how they switch and they, they both are heavy switching teams. They'll switch on a ton of stuff. They do it a little bit differently, but that, um, they both well, give us, Dean, Dean, give us something to talk. Give us something to look for there. So make us more sophisticated viewers of basketball. We know a little bit about basketball, but I still feel like quite the rube. And everybody's talking about these defenses. Everyone's talking about switching. You just said the teams switch differently. Give us a sense of what the differences are and how we can see that, identify that when we see it. Uh, well, uh, phys- the physicality with which you switch, because sometimes you will be into the ball and the other guy will be into the guy that they're going to be switching off of and how physical are you with that? How much contact do you make is one of the differences between those, these two teams at this point. So Boston is more physical. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the, the warriors are a little bit more tactical rather than saying, uh, the opposite of physical and they, um, (laughs) you don't want to call them soft. They're very, they're very smart. They, they communicate very well in general. If you're going to switch a lot, as both of these teams do, you have to have a good way of communicating with the person you're switching with. And Boston does it effectively by, by being close. And Golden State talks and points a lot, and they're very good at that. And so you'll see some of those differences. Um, there are, I think there are some things that I look at in terms of box-out stuff. So when you are physical as Boston is, sometimes you're – you're physical to the point that um, you are close to them and then a shot goes up, but then a guy just, okay, the, the pressure is off you, then you can go. And I think they've given up some of the offensive rebounds a, a little bit as a part of that, whereas Golden State's a little bit better at communicating on that. So I'm, I'm one second, I'm not quite sure I followed you all together. You, you're saying they're playing physical defense and then the shot goes up and they, 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 they lose the physical, they don't, they don't box out. They don't turn you. I thought you were going to say, they just turned that into a very aggressive boxing out, but you said, well, no, yeah. when they move, when they move yeah. to the rebound, it frees the, it frees the offensive player up in a way. Yeah. And, they, and they don't have the communication to back it up in the way that Golden State does. I got it. Okay. That's what it appears like to me. And um, it's, it, it could be, I, I question myself a lot on whether I have my own subjective bias before I have numbers in front of me like this, but I watch it. And I like Golden State can attack the glass very, very well. And when I've certainly specific plays, you look at, okay, yeah, they're really tight until the shot goes up. And then uh, it seems like guys can run. Okay. Okay. So, so Dean, maybe something for a, a lay person like myself. It seems to me like when you're in the finals and you have two really, really good teams, that they're just looking for bad matchups to happen. And it seems like switching leads to 
bad matchups. Like, you know, for example, if Golden State has Looney up top, and that means Al Horford's probably with him, and now all of a sudden Al Horford's covering Steph Curry, that's probably a bad matchup in general for the Celtics. What would happen to a team if they just never switched? Like, they just said, look, we're just never going to get caught in a bad matchup. Now, we understand Golden State can shoot over the top. Uh, guys may get open, but has there been a study that's been done that says that even though switching leads to bad matchups a lot of the time, and that's what the offense is trying to do, that you're better off by switching as as to not switching? You know, the trade-off between switching and not switching is is getting at what you're talking about. Matchups are one way you create an advantage as an offense. Another way is spacing. So screens yeah. are when you have a lot of switching. And screens create so much opportunity for spacing and for a team like Golden State that does switch a lot um, or that uh, shoots well, being able to switch there keeps the spacing from happening better. Um, and Steph can shoot from 36 and apparently Jordan Poole can shoot from 40 now. Uh, so uh, you got to take up even more of that space. But that's the basic trade-off is so matchups versus spacing. So it's more important for the Celtics to be able to switch appropriately because the South, the Golden State, I mean, yeah, it's important to switch, but the Celtics are not the outside shooting team that Golden, no one's the outside shooting team Golden State is. So you could imagine a scenario where maybe the Celtics the, of Golden State doesn't do as much switching. Is that possible? They're like, it's yeah, an, shoot, it, shoot if you want. It's an interesting question. Um, but first of all, I'll say Boston is a pretty good shooting team, but second, I would say that it's also part of Golden State's personality. This is what they do all year. So right. when you start adjusting to the point you're going to change a lot of the rules of your defense, you can get out of character and you probably don't do it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this is, it, it's not the end of the world. Milwaukee last year, uh, they experimented with, with switching um, against Phoenix, if I remember correctly, and they struggled with that. And they're like, oh, okay, let's, let's go back a little bit more to what we do. And, but they did that all year. They were able to change defenses to some degree. And as a result, they were able to adapt uh, their defense. But Golden State and Boston have been doing this all year. Uh, so going to a more straight uh, defense without switching, I don't see that happen. That's who they are. Are there any players that are particularly interesting to you in this, in this finals or any matchup that's particularly interesting? Now, Steph is always... Always oh, incredibly interesting uh, what that guy can do. His effect, even if he doesn't shoot the ball, is just mm-hmm. amazing. The mm-hmm. fact that you have to have a guy out on him at 30 feet uh, just allows the rest of the team to play four on four. And I don't know about you guys, but playing playing two on two is easier than three on three, which is easier than four on four, which is easier than five <laughs> on five. Right. So Steph allows you that advantage. Um, uh, Let me ask I you think, a question about Steph, just because yeah, yeah. of his body size and type, I'm sure. I, and I mean, obviously with totally within the rules of the game, but you know, I, you know, as someone that's my age that grew up in the eighties watching, you know, the tough piston teams and the bulls teams ever, they would have tried to beat up Steph Curry within, within the rules of the game at that time or, or not, <laughs> or not. Why are we are talking just, about Lambeer, right? Yeah. Well, Lambeer, Mahorn, Sally, there's plenty of um, Rodman that we, we know that team, uh, you know, Vinny Johnson, Dumars, uh, there was a physical team. Why aren't teams just trying to, maybe they are now, it is a quote-unquote advanced age of 34, just try to physically beat this guy up and wear him down so that by the fourth quarter, you know, 
he's not the same Steph Curry as he is in quarter one. And by, and by the way, I mean, in pool is a, a younger, skinnier version of Curry. And so he's subject to the same thing. Right. Beat him up too. And I, I think some of that is happening. If you watch, yes, they are trying to get a body on him anytime he is running. Um, I think one of the things that is different, you talk about the bad boys and everything in the eighties, that they were able to have the hard fouls at the rim. Now hard fouls at the rim are being looked at on a regular basis for whether that was flagrant. And teams do not want to lose a player now. So I think that is, I think that's to his advantage. And I think it's, of course, to the game's advantage too, mm-hmm. to have that kind of rule. But yeah, there's a lot of subtle shots. Um, and Steph has been on the ground a, a fair amount already in two games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, Eric, consider how much, I mean, I, you can only get so big when you're a little guy, but consider how much bigger he's gotten over the last, over his career. You know, you just, you, you oh, just yeah. you add weight, add weight to make yourself a little more immune to that kind of stuff. It's fun to look at old uh, Steph Curry videos and to remember how small he was. Right. Originally. <laughs> he, he looked like a little kid. Let me ask a quick <laughs> question about the Wizards, because, you know, I just brought up on my screen Washington Wizards players, and I'm thinking, this has to be an exciting time to be with the Wizards. I mean, I'm looking at these players and I'm thinking, Bradley Beal, he can play. If you get the healthy and the motivated Porzingis, I'm a former Nick fan, he can play. We know Kyle Kuzma can play. I think Hachimura can play. KCP can play. Kispert can play. Neto knows his role. He can play. So how, how are you thinking about the Wizards team right now? If me, if, you know, if I was going to buy a stock on the rise, I'd be thinking... This is a real team with a lot of interesting talent on it. Never mind that coaching talent. Yeah, that too. <laughs> and I, I think uh, from the management perspective, they have helped us give, uh, get a number of players who we think can develop. And, and Rui and Denny and Corey, uh, even Kuz, uh, these are still young guys who can develop. I mean, there's... KP is a, a little bit older, but I think he has gone through this process of getting injured. And I think guys can get better off of injury because they sit and watch to some degree and then they come back and they can build. And, and so uh, KP has been great to talk to. Um, and we have the mix of veterans. We have Brad, we have uh, Pope. Uh, KCP is, he's a great veteran. So we like him. Our job right now and this is what we spend a good amount of time in the offseason doing is how do we optimize the guys we have so as good as it may look it's still our job to make them look better dean can you say and you may or may not be able to say but can you say anything more about that i I was literally just thinking about it earlier today how in basketball you know one or two guys can make a big difference in a team and so if you have an ability to develop players if you had advantage in developing players versus other teams, that could really translate into success on the court. But what, what creates that advantage? Why are some teams better at developing a young player into a real asset than other teams are? What differentiates teams on this? Uh, I wish I had the, a great answer for that. I, because even if I, even if I had a great answer for that, I couldn't tell you that. If that frankly, <laughs> I would be giving something away, but I do I'll make it a point to ask players or coaches or whomever may have been, uh, in franchises where they seem to do a very good job with player development. Uh, San Antonio historically has kind of been, oh, yeah, they, they've always done a really good job making guys look better. Um, and try to understand the secrets of that. There's, It's not as simple a game as baseball. And there was a book uh, whose name I, I can't remember. It was talking about 
developing baseball players, player development stuff, like working on how hard they throw and using high-end technology. Might be M- MVP machine. Is it Lindbergh? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. That uh, you read through that and think about, okay, well, we are not a single skill thing. It's not just like swinging a bat. It's not just like throwing a baseball. You're reacting to scenarios and that yeah. your decision-making is kind of critical. And so it's not as simple as, as that. There are There is this simple skill that Steph Curry makes look simple and that he can, <laughs> he can shoot it like that. And where I can guarantee you every single NBA team spends the majority of their time working on that. Okay. But the nuances, how you do it, there have been – there has been discussion of what Steph does out there and how he, he shoots crazy shots in practice. He never shoots real set shots in practice. He's going to go out, but there's videos that shows that he does. But so right. What's, right. what is actually happening and what is not. I, I, I don't know. So Dean, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if it, it's sort of an answerable question, but it's related to this topic that uh, Kay just talked about. Let's imagine that, with average, I'm, I'm an effect size guy. So I want to try to get an idea of how big an effect size you think coaching has. So let's say if you guys do an average job of coaching, the Wizards win 45 games. If you do a great job of coaching, how many more do they win? And if you do a horrible job of coaching, they win this many less. Like, is it all just about the talent or is coaching effect size two wins, five wins, 10 wins? Like, how big should we be thinking the coaching effect is? David Barry did a study on this one uh, many years ago that I think was done pretty well. I mean, you can make some arguments about it. And he was generally showing that kind of the elite coaches are up at about 10 wins. Wow. Um, Oh, my. Yeah, exactly. That was the Phil Jackson uh, Popovich magnitude. And I think uh, I think more like some of the good coaches are in that five range. And I think what's interesting is when you're going to be worse um, then more than a couple games below that, you get axed pretty quick. So um, it, it's on a rate basis. It's, yeah, right. uh, it, it ends up you don't get to minus 10. And then, of course, I'm gonna, my, my natural <laughs> right. Good point. My natural follow up question is related to Kate's other point that he raised earlier, which is so let's imagine the Wizards are successful in the draft and you draft a really good player. How much is he worth? Like, like I. What you're suggesting to me is that a great coach may also be worth like a great player. Because if you had told me you guys get a great person to draft them, I said that person might add eight to ten wins. So now I'm thinking a great coach and a great player are about equal. Oh, there's yeah, there's there's a fair number of like if you're talking about your top twenty five players in the NBA, a good number of them are adding uh, ten wins a season, okay. and certainly you your best. There's estimates of anywhere from about. 15 to 25 wins for those top guys. Oh and there's some of the metrics are, are a little bit they're flaky on that. I, I tend to believe kind of the middle of that range of that 20. Mm-hmm. Dean, can you, uh, can you just clarify one thing when you say wins above replacement or above average yeah. wins above the replacement. So basically that's a, what is that in basketball? That's a, a replacement level. It's <laughs> replacement level usually gets set by, um, basically the worst team. So the worst teams that win about 10 to, to 12, 13 games, and then that sets uh, up points, basically how many points you add, and that, you, that's what you use. So a, 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 a really good team has how many wins above replacement to spread around? 
a really good team will win about 60, 65. So it's about 50. Yeah, 50 above okay. average. All right, so that, that starts to make it possible for an elite player to add 20, 25. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I guess my comment was going to be at, at, at the extremes, though, it, can't, it has to stop being kind of additive, right? Because you are going to start hitting sort of a cap on the number of, of wins. Like, you know, again, like, well, like a, so for example, one of these when, super teams then going yeah. out, you know, adding Greg Popovich on top of that, there's there's not enough room for Greg Popovich to add his usual 10 wins. Well, I we saw guess. the experiment when Durant went to the Warriors a few years ago. I mean, Durant has to be at 20 or 25 if that's the limit, but he didn't add 20 to that team. There is no way. Correct. Yeah, there's uh, there's only so many minutes and there's only so many possessions. Right. Uh, where you can really make, where you make more of an impact. If you're mm-hmm. if you're standing there, you are affecting the game, and he is going to spread the floor. Steph is going to spread the floor, but that marginal value that you add is a little bit less. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dean, we could do this. We could do this all afternoon. Appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys got a lot going on right now. Appreciate you yeah. taking the time to come visit with us. Yep. Um, always, always good to see you. Yep, good to see you all. Dean Oliver, assistant coach with the Washington Wizards, longtime basketball analyst, one of the pioneers in analytics, especially in basketball, but has made contributions in other places. Always a pleasure to talk to Dean Oliver. This has been Cade Massey and the whole crew in here, Q4, and in fact, all the way from Q1. For Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, for the boss man, Matty Batts, for the associate boss man, Leon Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.